Welcome to the Type Pod. I'm Anich Nottingham, former book designer, former typography teacher, former co-chair of a graphic design school. I'm now a learning experience designer, but I'm a type nerd and I always will be. I'm Jason Phillips, formerly a book designer and typography teacher. I'm a sometime illustrator and artist. In my career, I've never strayed far from type though, and it'll always have a place in my heart. We're whipped into shape by our producer Inga Mewburn, professor at Australian National University and editor of the Thesis Whisperer blog. We're designers who went to the same design school, but a couple of years apart. And it wasn't until we worked together at Oxford University Press, where we honed our type skills and we became friends and developed a mutual hatred of the typeface Gaudi, <laughs> all of which still burns strong 25 years later. Indeed it does, Jason. Each episode, we deep dive into one typeface, finding out the sometimes surprising history behind the design and the designer. We admire, or not, its anatomy, ponder its uses and cultural impact, and then we ignore all of that and talk about our feelings. <laughs> this episode, we're going to be talking about Baskerville, which apparently is the most trustworthy of typefaces. So don't be surprised if you find yourself nodding along with the transcript of this episode, which is set in Baskerville and can be downloaded from our show notes on the website. Okay, let's get started. Anitra, who designed Baskerville, when and why? Well, Baskerville, Jason, was designed by, unsurprisingly, John Baskerville, Right. We in, get that a lot. You this. get that a lot, yep. In 1754, especially in right. 1754. And look, I was going to get stuck into Baskerville this episode, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. The through line was going to be guy who ripped other people off and was dissed by the Vox classification system, <laughs> which, you know, burn. burn yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was going to stick the boot into him for making his wife do all the hard work, which I still will oh. in a bit. Yes, okay. but while I was researching, I found this bio, which was written by Yarp Haskumpt, and I'll check on the pronunciation right. of that later, on his sure. website, A Beautiful Book, where he talked about Baskerville's life and what happened afterwards, spoiler right. alert, in a way that gave me a much more nuanced view. And, well, I've changed my mind, Jason. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm Team Baskerville. He is now <laughs> someone who will be invited to my historical dinner party. Let me tell you why. I am all ears and also wondering if I'm ever going to get an invite to one of these amazing historical dinner parties of yours. Considering they never actually happen, Jason, consider yourself invited anytime okay. you feel like it. A standing invite. You standing it, invite. You heard it, listeners, you heard it first. Yeah, I, can't, um, I wouldn't right, turn you so away. Yeah. <clears throat> tell me about one of my potentially fellow guests, John Baskerville. <laughs> okay, well, Baskerville's rather famous for being an atheist, which is something I did wow. not know about him. And apparently it's usually one of the first things in his bio, which is true because I've read a few bios, a few different bios, yeah. that is actually true. And the Victorians, according to Hardcamp, used to really like to dwell on this, right? Okay. And atheism <laughs> in the 1700s, it was, as my children like to say, a pretty Chad move, right? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And look, all credit to Baskerville, he totally leaned in. Okay, right. so I'm going to give you an idea of his commitment. Like he left orders to be buried in a mausoleum, not in a graveyard, not in a church, no. right? He wanted right. to be buried in his garden under a mausoleum and he wrote this in I, his will. I've, I foresee some, some issues with local councils and stuff like that. But. 
But anyway, things were different back then. Who, who has no truck with with bureaucracy? I'm I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, not bylaws, by council or by church. No. Jason's not right. here for okay. it. Okay. Okay. So he said in his will, "I have a yep. hearty contempt." And as they did back in the day, they used to capitalize yep. words they felt particularly strongly oh, yes, about. Yes, okay. Yep. So hearty contempt or capital letters for yep. all superstition, also Ooh. capital letter. And his right. epitaph, which he wrote for himself, and he left this in his will. Yep. So he's like, put this on the stone that you put on me yep. in a non-graveyard type situation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to read it out because it's great. So stranger, M dash. And I love that he put the M dash in there. <laughs> right? Such a typographer move. Yeah, to the end. To the end, though. So <clears throat> yep. stranger, beneath this cone in unconsecrated ground, Ooh. a friend to the liberties of mankind directed his body to be inhumed. May the example contribute to emancipate thy mind from the idle fears of superstition and the wicked arts of priesthood. Ouch. Yeah. And you can look on the transcript (laughs) to see which words were capitalised in that statement, but there were quite a lot of words capitalised in that. Weirdly, not priesthood. A lot of anger. Yeah, a lot lot of of anger. anger Yeah, yeah. So, right, so that, I mean... He meant it, right? He was an atheist yeah, to the end. Absolutely. No, he, he wasn't, you know, a non-atheist in a foxhole yeah. type situation. Um, an atheist beyond death. <laughs> he was like, no truck with that. So I'll talk more about what actually happened after he was buried because it's pretty okay. wild, okay? Right. But I this. will note that his atheism is pretty much washed out of the Wikipedia entry, which I find mm-hmm. interesting and possibly because it wasn't written by Victorians. Who knows? <laughs> right. But I suspect that his personal non-belief system, right, combined yeah. with the fact that he was a Republican, so not a fan of the king slash queen. Yeah. Um, also a friend of Benjamin Franklin's, those, okay. you know, those terrible Americans and their one of independence <laughs> and whatnot, is actually the real reason he got dissed by the Vox classification system. And how exactly he got Ooh. dissed, I'll get onto a bit later in right. the appropriate okay. part of this episode. Gosh. But anyway, that's that's Jan Hard, uh, whatever his name is. What did I say? Yap Hardkemp's. Uh, contention. I think he might be right on the okay. money there because uh, right. he yeah. he certainly did not. Uh, he certainly leaned in. Yeah. Controversial. Okay. So I guess you actually want to know a bit more about Baskerville, other than the fact yeah, that he yeah. really wasn't yeah. a church goer. Okay. So he okay. was born in 1705 and he died in 1775. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he had a, a pretty long, you know, yeah, 70 years. Life. It's not bad yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Like us, he was a typography teacher for a while. Well, he was sort of the equivalent uh, of a typography okay, teacher, yeah. right? So in 1720... I'm, I'm guessing things are a bit different. Things are a little bit different. Also, we were online typography teachers. Yeah, that's right. So we're just different by default. Anyway, in 1726, at the age of yep. 17, he moved to Birmingham to become a writing master. So by that's teaching people how to do fancy calligraphy handwriting, right? right? That, that's sort of akin to the Jane Austen thing of a dancing mask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, yeah, you know, he, he makes your handwriting look pretty. And look, honestly, yep. I would hire that for my kids, but long story. <laughs> anyway, he was already by then what they called a skilled engraver. So he used to, okay. you know, sort of be able to do the engraving onto into metal or whatever and do it stone and whatnot. And as a writing master, he would have taught calligraphy. That's not just for wedding invitations, right? That was for everything back then, right? Calligraphy was the thing, right? Absolutely. Beautiful writing was the standard. Yeah, exactly. And we could go on about what we've lost from that. But I think that the, I think the kids today do appreciate that because calligraphy's had a bit more of a moment 
right? Yeah. Oh, then, you know. Well, it's, never, it's never gone away. No. It's never gone away. It, it wasn't cool. It's become cool again. Anyway, so Baskerville, was he was also known for highly crafted tombstones and right. honestly the surviving engravings, If you, uh, we might put some on the website. They're very beautiful. And it's an impressive skill set for someone who was 17 when they became a teacher. Yeah. Right? Actually, and just... <laughs> you probably can't entirely contribute that to the thing, the fact that high school wasn't really a thing back then. So yeah. if, you, <laughs> if you found something you were good at, you just started doing that at age yeah. whatever, right? Anyway, still an impressive skill set. So so he's good at this thing. But while in Birmingham, Baskerville also started a side hustle of making japanned. That's the kind of lacquered enameled goods in the Japanese style. Uh And that was very fashionable at the time. Yep. Right? And look, this is where I was going to start dragging Baskerville for cultural appropriation. (laughs) (laughs) But then I remembered and then I looked it up that it was during the 214 years that Japan pretty much closed itself off from the West. So these kind of goods were really expensive back then. And, you know, you kind of bought that on yourself a bit there, 18th century Japan. I'm just saying. Don't want people you stealing your stuff. You left a gap in the market You did, like you did, and he walked right into it. Um, what can you do? He wasn't the only one doing that. No, I'm sure he Apparently wasn't. he used to follow people around to figure out what their, what their trick was because, like, the ink that you had to develop for it. It's very black ink or something that to, to do the enameling and he used to follow some guy around to like check out his suppliers and then go in and ask <laughs> how much the guy bought of everything to try and get the same recipe. Like he's anyway, what I'm gonna say is he's good at making he's a very enterprising young a very man, enterprising like person. So he was good at making these enamel tchotchkes or very clever in business <laughs> or a bit of a corporate spy or all of those yes. things. Anyway, within about ten years he'd made a huge fortune. Right. And he quit his day job of teaching people calligraphy. He leased right. a bunch of land outside the city of Birmingham right. and built himself what we would today probably call a McMansion, okay. right? <laughs> Which I think he rather delightfully named as Easy Hill. Oh. Yeah, okay. that just sounds like your retirement pad, doesn't it? I think I might steal that. <laughs> he surrounded it with a lovely garden yeah. and there was a just this is how deep I went on the guy. Okay, so I looked up yeah, and I, found I, a description I... of the sale of his house. Uh- <laughs> Just to see what it was actually like. And it was set up as a sort of work from home type situation, right? So it had stables and it had a common and a butler's pantry. And I don't know what a common pantry is or a butler's pantry, but I want both of those things. And it had what it called a good garden and greenhouse. I don't know how that's different from a bad one. But also, and I'm quoting here, spacious warehouses and workshops suitable for the mercantile business or any extensive manufactory together with about seven acres of rich pasture land in high condition. And part of this is laid out in shady walks adorned with shrubberies, fish ponds and a grotto. Like it sounds great. (laughs) Although I can't ever hear the word shrubbery. Yeah, I know. You did notice that I said it that way. Shrubberies also capitalised. <laughs> yes, exactly. As is fish ponds but, and wow. grotto. So, so honestly, he's kind of set up the ultimate um, house slash mercantile empire headquarters. It's a compound, Jason. He's kind like of he's... he's kind of a an early James Bond villain. <laughs> it, yeah, well, I guess he's an atheist, so therefore in some people's minds he's a villain. But yeah, go figure. So look, he, so of course he had all these warehouses and stuff because he set yeah. up a print shop in that. Wow. That's where he had his print shop. because sure. So he's in his late 40s, he's made his money, he's fully cashed up yep. and right. Baskerville's basically casting around for his post-IPO career, if you know what I mean. Okay, yep. yeah? as you do. And decided yep. to devote the rest of his life to fine typography. Like he just went, I'm just going to do really great typography. Yeah. Like, oh, hey. Yeah, that's great. If you can, why not? Yeah. So <laughs> he started his own press, which they did back then, and he went about trying to make the very finest crafted books. And apparently it never made any money. But 
when you think about how it was set up, he didn't really care. He was no, doing it for well, the he love. Clearly didn't. <clears throat> clearly didn't need to. And I guess this is something of a theme for our podcast, <laughs> which is you know set up a printing business. Yeah. Shame that's a dead end ambition nowadays. You Unfortunately, hone your type design skills and voila, type immortality. Correct. And. I mean, speaking of finely crafted books, Baskerville produced a version of the King James Bible, which set a new standard in quality. Now, a Gideon Bible gathering dust in a drawer of every cheap motel probably diminishes that achievement (laughs) in modern eyes. But in those days, Bible printing was actually protected by royal privilege. Mm. And let's face it, it's the one book you don't want to be introducing any errors or unauthorised editions to. So you really do need to know your stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how such an avowed atheist and Republican ended up doing that. Kind of reconcile. Except maybe he was trying to bring a bit of cash in. You well, know? I can say that would that would be a commercial success yeah. in and of itself, guaranteed. Guaranteed because, bestseller. It yeah, has been yeah, for years. Absolutely. I mean, oh, of course, I I have it on my iPhone now, like the right. Bible. <laughs> okay. And I'm, I'm not the spoiler alert for those who don't know me. I'm not a believer, but no. I do have it on my do have it on my phone because when people sort of throw Bible verses, I'm like, I oh, want to know what the context the, of that is. So, it up yeah, exactly rubbish. right. Um, Jesus never said that. <laughs> so even as an app, I'm still I'm sure it's a bestseller. So mm, anyway. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to the thing that really probably set him against the church, right? Okay. Let's just dig a little okay. deeper I'm into intrigued. the scandal I'm of Baskerville's now. life. So it's around the time he built Easy Hill that he started a relationship with Sarah Eves. Right. Now, she was a married woman. <gasps> I know. Scandal. I know, with three children. And her husband had run off after being accused of fraud. Oh, gosh. Right? So she was his housekeeper. Uh, Of course. And at some point became his housekeeper. (laughs) Housekeeper. Look, accounts vary about whether she started working there or he took it in and then they got involved or a bit of both maybe. But clearly they loved each other. Like they got married 10 years later in 1764, just days after her husband finally died. Died. Yeah, but before that, Baskerville just lived with Sarah and her kids openly and scandalously and didn't give a toss what anyone said about it, which I quite like. Uh, look, ignore the haters, John and Sarah. Love wins. Yes. And, yes, it does. Know, honestly, I can't help wondering whether that line in his epitaph about the wicked arts of priesthood owes something to the probable public condemnation yeah. of their domestic arrangements. I mean... They were both in their late 50s when they finally got married and made honest people of each other in the eyes of society. Yeah, right. That's sweet, but it's also kind of sad when you think about the average life expectancy at the time. I mean, we know that Baskerville lived till he was 70, but, you know, that's only 20 years of marriage that they get to squeeze in at the end. Yeah, so if he hadn't have lived with her, think of what they would have missed out on. Yeah, so, and yet, like... Not that I want to harp on it, but it really took some guts to live together openly back then, right? Absolutely. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who I think he wrote some books that people have heard of about Son Detective. <laughs> yeah. I hear that they're very famous. <laughs> Apparently they still make, they made this show called Sherlock, I think, yeah, out of some yeah, of them. Anyway, okay. he lived in Birmingham. So right. he wrote a little story called The Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, and there's some speculation uh, that he might have named the main character after John Baskerville. I see where right? you're going. And so I'm reading here from the beautiful book Blood Post again, right? Oh, yes. So yes, here I am reading. Dutch in 
In Conan Doyle's story, 17th century Sir Hugo Baskerville is a notorious character living a life of drunkenness and debauchery until one night he's <laughs> reputedly killed in a Baskerville Hall in the wilds of Dartmoor by a demonic hound sent to punish his wickedness. <clears throat> Wow. And John Baskerville was also considered an immoral rebel, defying social and religious <laughs> convention. He lived openly with his partner. He rejected religion. He poured scorn on religious bigots and indulged wow. in his fondness for show and exhibitionism, wearing masses of gold lace and riding about <laughs> in a lavishly decorated carriage. How could one socially accept an atheist living in a sinful relationship and daring to take on typographic orthodoxy of the day? Was that not stretching toleration a step too far? And I agree with you there, Yarp. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a bit hung up on the masses of gold lace. I know, that's right. They're just like, and we don't like the way you dress. <laughs> it's naff. And what does, what does our friend Nick call them, Inga? I forget what the chuds or chads or what's he, what's that word? Chads. For, Chavs. Chavs. Yeah, he's basically a chav and they've just got no time for it. Yeah, there you go. So let's talk about Sarah for a bit because we've talked about John quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. About what she did to help him with the press that he set up. She's always listed as helping to run the print shop, which back then is no small undertaking. Like they didn't run at a profit. Baskerville's didn't. The equipment was expensive. And with her taking on the the labour of running things that I, I will... In the next season, just to give you a little bit of a heads up, I will talk a bit more about print shots and what it took to run them at the time. The apprentices were yep. particularly rowdy. But with her <laughs> taking on the labour of running things, Baskerville's able to concentrate on his goal, right, which yeah. is basically I'm going to make the de- best typeface ever. That was yeah, his goal for Baskerville, yep. right? So Sarah carried on the business when he died, so clearly she knew what she was doing. Yeah, was and I did find one book printed after his death was, is attributed to her, but that's it. Right. Wow. And this is depressingly usual for the time, even in our own time. The extent of women's contributions not recorded, of course. So we can't really know. <laughs> but I choose to think she was an equal partner and had just as good an eye and knew her wearing around a compositing stick. <laughs> Which, and the, you know, this is another recurring theme of our podcast: is the behind every great man. Yes, great man. Cetera, cetera. Yes. <laughs> And I will say for our listeners, yes, compositing stick does sound a bit risque out of context. So yeah, it does. For their benefit, a compositing stick is a sort of shallow adjustable tray on which you would assemble all the individual bits of metal type to form a line of words before transferring it to the galley and locking it into the form. And that forms a kind of 3D metal jigsaw puzzle consisting of the entire page and that is then ready to be printed. Compositor is kind of the Ginger Rogers of the typesetting <laughs> world because not only does all the text need to be properly spaced and free from spelling errors, but because of the ink transfer process, it all has to be set backwards. Yeah. And I guess wearing heels while you're doing it is optional. <laughs> but still tricky. <clears throat> Absolutely. This is why typos were probably a little bit more... Devastating. Yeah, and devastating. Imagine, like, unpicking all that work. Like, you present everything Absolutely. up and then you're like, oh, crap. That should have been an I, not a Y. Um, That's right. Okay, so Baskerville's Press, like, he's operating at an interesting time in the history of printing. So it's somewhat akin to the development of the internet in the early 2000s, I would say. Okay. It, like, book printing really exploded in the 1700s. So there's estimates that they're about... 337,000, I don't know where they get 337,000, sounds like a bit of a dodgy number, (laughs) books were printed in this period compared to about 14,000 in the centuries before. So it goes from 14,000 to like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And we should also probably mention that John Baskerville was also known for his innovations in print technology. He replaced the old wooden platen with a bronze one of his own design, which provided better and more even pressure on the paper Mm. over a greater area. And as you mentioned earlier, he developed some darker and richer printing inks. And how did he do that? Let's not ask too many questions. No, we're not going to delve into that kind of industrial espionage aspect of it. But that, that, you know, developing innovations in technology and printing and even the ink stuff is feels very far removed from the life of the modern graphic designer. Mm, I mean, Anitra, at college, we both went on excursions to a little local type foundry and got to play around with sorts, which are the individual metal cast characters. And we got to physically compose some type and handle the mechanics of a small printing press, but that was all the result of access and cooperation and organisation and some measure of goodwill on the part of the people running these little type foundries and our lecturers. Yeah, it was fun. But, um, <clears throat> and not to go all kind of Karl Marx and the Oh, no, do. Go Karl Marx. Production, go full Karl Marx. Do it. Since the, we've got since atheism, the we've got Karl Marx. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, but basically since the advent of digital type and especially digital printing, I mean, these days potentially you could go your entire design career without seeing a printing press in action. Well, Am yeah, I, right? I mean, yeah. look, the stuff is digital, direct to plate. Yeah, so you, know, you don't, so. so designers nowadays don't really even get a sense of, of what happens when they send something off to be printed because you just don't have the access to it anymore. But, and, 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 and really, say, honestly, they're missing out on the fun of having yeah. the print guy tell you exactly how dumb your design is because it won't print properly. <laughs> Which is always a fun part of showing up at the printer, you know. And spotting that telltale, you know, spelling error and having to unpick the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that impresses me about um, John Baskerville's experimentation with ink is that uh, if you rocked up at the offices of a commercial printing firm and told them that you'd invented a revolutionary new ink that they really should try (laughs) and they laughed you off the premises, that would be the most polite thing that could happen. Yeah, what are you doing here? thinking about that though probably the early days of app design is probably the closest kind of analogy to that we can do more than just be a designer idea that just occurred to me as you were talking that those moments are very you know that's happened once in my whole career like that there's been kind of that that opportunity and I'd say "Mm, I mean maybe not as much now you know so yeah and it's a really good point (laughs) like I'm just I'm very amused at thinking of all these print guys just showing up and trying to sell them something they just yeah they they just had no had no time and this is probably because they just spent a lot of time with designers futzing around doing press checks and yeah and holding out loops and you know (coughs) being annoying you know when 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 John Baskerville rocked up with his his new ink so I'm sure there was probably a lot of eye rolling and oh, <laughs> well you know okay, like we gotta... he owned he was the boss though right that was yeah, the great exactly. thing yeah so at least in his own it. shop he's like guys we're doing this so yeah. and look you know honestly it's true the old guys had it easier they just had so much low-hanging fruit as <laughs> as my son likes to say about the Beatles well it was easy back then pop songs hadn't yeah. been written very much I was like fair point so all right, so let me tell you about what he was trying to do when he made Baskerville, since that's what okay. we're supposed to be talking about yes, here. Yes. Like, basically, he was trying to make a better version of the typeface Caslin, and it okay. seems to be a bit personal. Baskerville developed Baskerville about 34 years after William Caslin designed Caslin. Am I saying Caslin right? That's how I always say it, Caslon. Yeah. 
Keslon. Yeah, he mentions Caslon in the preface to his edition of Paradise Lost in 1758, right. where he also gave his only public explanation for starting the press. So this okay. is Baskerville, and this yep. is in his little thing that he said at the start of the book. Amongst the several mechanic arts that have engaged my intention, there is no one which I've pursued with so much steadiness and pleasure as that of letter founding. Having been an early admirer of the beauty of letters, I became insensibly desirous of contributing Ooh. to the perfection of them an insensibly desirous Inga title of your next romance book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how or when, but I'm going to insert that into a conversation at some point. I'm sure we have My all at some point after this episode. been insensibly desirous of something. Anyway, and yeah. to finish his quote, I formed to myself ideas of greater accuracy than had yet appeared, and I have endeavoured to produce a set of types according to what I conceive to be their true proportions. So that's basically a flex. He's yes. like, and, mm, and a it's not that perfect, can I say? Yeah, everyone's um, like, I'm looking for design perfection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which makes him like a total designer because that is what they're yeah, like. Well, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. So we well, we we all aim for that, but few of us kind of achieve. Well, it, that's definite perfectionism <laughs> talking there, Jason. This is true. Only perfectionists true. think that way. Just saying. It's yep. the curse of the designer. Anyway, it is. True. I mean, he's, he's basically, because everyone loved Caslon, right? Yes. And so he's basically saying, yeah, you all think it's really great, but mm, I can do I better. I can do better. <laughs> Caslon, for the record, and we can talk about him in season two, yes. was also an oh, engraver and a metal worker. Yeah. He was yep. the first person, the first English printer to really successfully punch, cut, or carve letters out of metal. And he right. was really well known. And his typeface, Caslon, was the first real quality typeface to come out of England, right? The Americans really loved it. So if you're going to take someone down, go yeah. for the big guy, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And just like I'm going to beat Taylor Swift is basically no, no, what no they're small, doing there. No small fry here. No. Go after the big guns. Go after the big guns. So <laughs> Caslon the typeface compared to Baskerville's, it's more conservative and it's more modelled after human handwriting. It's been described as a happy anachronism. So Baskerville. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's nice. Little, there's lots of turns of phrase in this episode. Baskerville yeah. is, is sharper, it's crisper, it's more precise. Like, But to be right. honest, to the untrained eye, you probably would find it pretty hard to distinguish between the two. So that is a, a weight to the argument that he's really trying to, like, you know, do Caslon but better. So. Yes. It took Baskerville four years to produce this typeface. He was always striving for wow. clarity and simplicity. And the layouts that he produced from his print workshop, they're more spare, they're more typographic, they're less decorative. As you mentioned, his Bible is probably his greatest work, and he, he made that for yes. Cambridge University Press. They made him their printer in 1763. Yes. His other well-known works, apart from Paradise Lost, was, oh, here we go, <laughs> Publi... Virgili. Publi Vergili Maronis Bucolica Georgica et Anais. <laughs> and I put that in there. And, 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 and I put that in there to see if I could say it, which I can't. And I and didn't. I butchered it as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I got the Publi Virgili Maronis Bucolica. <laughs> if you want to have a look at it, copy it out of the transcript, plug it yeah, into the Google that's machine, right. and, and then and challenge you can yourself. try it. Yeah. And send us a speak pipe of you saying it better than us. <laughs> we'll be fine with that. So, Baskerville, not much appreciated in England, although that might have no. something to do with the whole church thing. Yeah. <laughs> a classic sort of big in Japan type of deal. He was more appreciated on the continent. Ah, okay. yes, yes, he's Lucretius de Rerum Natara, the works of Catalyst, Tibulus and Propertius. 
the comedies. Of, why did I put this in there? The comedies <laughs> of Terence Sharfrey's characteristics and the four volume edition of Aristotle's <clears throat> Orlando Fusirio. Yep. Furiso. So. Anyway, we bought by the Europeans, um, right. but not really by the English so much. And the Americans liked okay. him too. Yep. Benjamin Franklin's fellow printer and friend. And it was actually the typographer Bruce Rogers, who's American, who came across a type yeah. specimen at Baskerville in 1917, who went and tracked down the original matrices and revived the typeface of the modern world. Oh, so wow. okay. I kind of love that. Like the yeah. you know, British didn't like him so much. So, yeah. I mean, the basic problem was Baskerville made a quality product, but it was expensive, you know, and as I said, okay. the press never made money. Sarah tried to keep it going, but eventually she had to sell it and all the gear. Oh. Yeah, and she died in oh. 1788, the year in which wow. our country ah, yes. <laughs> was invaded by white people. So yeah. just sort of think of that in the context of, of yeah. living in this country is kind of interesting. Wow. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting through the history, I promise. I did promise sure. to tell you about what happened after he died. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. He died at home at his beloved Easy Hill in 1775, as I think right. I said before. And I'm going to quote here from John H. Lionheart, and he wrote a nice little podcast about Baskerville. I only found the transcript. Sorry, John, couldn't find the actual podcast <laughs> about how Baskerville had refused to be placed on consecrated ground. So this uh, is me quoting Lionheart from a pod- podcast transcript, just to be yeah. confusing. And here the fun begins. To be very meta. Yeah, very meta. <laughs> and so as, as he says, here the fun begins, where to put John Baskerville. First, he was put in a mausoleum on his own land, as he had been requested, right? But the house was yeah. wrecked during the Birmingham riots and the land oh. was sold. Okay. So as an aside here, the Birmingham rioters, they were a bunch of religious fanatics, actually. Ah, okay. And they were protesting support for the French Revolution who targeted religious dissenters. So John and Sarah are already ah, dead by then, know. but you don't, you know, you don't know if the memory around that space kind of lingered. Yes. And they were like, oh, those guys seem like... Lefties, let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's go and trash. <laughs> let's brave. go trash their place. Yeah. So back to Lionheart. It's got a very anti-vaxxer vibe. It does, yes. doesn't it? Don't you <laughs> think? This is happening in another country, and I'm pissed off. About it. <laughs> yeah, and these people seem altogether too tolerant of things that are different, and I don't like that. It makes me frightened. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It does, it's funny how things like that seem very weird. A few years ago, now seem like they. Oh, you're like, oh, yeah, of course they did. <laughs> we're kind of used to it. Yeah, now. you're like, yeah, idiots. <laughs> anyway, like, oh, that doesn't sound strange at all. <laughs> Oof. Anyway, back to Lionheart. He said right. a developer eventually cut a canal through the property, and in right. 1821, workmen found Baskerville's lead-lined coffin. Ah. Side note: apparently, his body was really well preserved 46 years later. So this Thanks is back to, the to lead. yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic because, you know, dead, led deadly to living people but yeah. preserves dead people. Yeah. Also, that's types made out of lead. There's all sorts of beautiful yeah, yeah. things oh, about that. Yeah. I'm just going to go back to Hardkamp for a sec in, from his yeah. beautiful book. So just about the body, and this is him quote from him. It was wrapped yeah. in white linen shroud with a bunch of laurel, faded but firm in texture, the skin on the face was dry but perfect. The eyes were gone, but eyebrows, the eyelashes, lips, and teeth remained. Oh, the skin on the abdomen a, and body this generally is a bit too creepily detailed. <laughs> was in the same state as the face, but like they were all like, "Wow, that's really well preserved." Like a, a number of people yeah. kind of noted it, but apparently yeah. it was a bit whiffy, so they had to <laughs> close the coffin up really quickly. Tell Supreme, yeah. Funnily <laughs> enough, so this is back to Lionheart's podcast again. Right. 
Since it couldn't be buried in any consecrated cemetery, it sat in a warehouse until a plumber put it to use as a workbench. But that finally became... This is the coffin. This is the coffin with the body. This is the coffin becomes... Because they didn't want to open it because it was a bit too whiffy. Yeah. So they close it up, (laughs) becomes a workbench. And that finally became too morbid even for him. So the plumber cast about... Welcome to the... (laughs) Trying to find the real world. Trying to find a churchyard that would take the coffin, and all of them said no. Right? Until at last a bookseller came to the rescue. Ah, right. The fellow I'm still quoting Leinhardt here, he writes a good pod scoop. Yeah. The fellow sneaked Baskerville into his family crypt at Christchurch. (laughs) So he ended up in a church after all. But this is the good bit. When the church was raised, Baskerville was moved from that spot to Warstone Lane Catacombs, a consecrated labyrinth where he remains today. So he went into a church and then the church got burnt down. So I love that. (laughs) And so there's no church. That's the atheist revenge. (laughs) Yeah, so there's no church over the top of Baskerville and I'm assuming he prefers it that way. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's way more about the history of John Baskerville than the history of Baskerville the typeface, I will admit, but it is quite fascinating. Ah, that's incredible, particularly all the stuff that happens to his body after death. I mean, (laughs) who who knew? (laughs) You can see how I changed my mind. I'm like, this guy's amazing. So let's think about what was happening in the world in 1754 when the first specimen of Baskerville was printed in his collection of Virgil's works. Okay. It's the first recorded instance of the word serendipity, which was coined by oh. Horace Walpole. Well, yep. Walpole. 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 Uh, that. Anyway. Yep. Um, Walpole. He was writing about the lost painting of Bianca Capello, which, fun fact, features in my heist novel. So oh. that's why. A little, little bit that. of a plug there. A little bit of a plug for the heist novel. Still not finished. Yep. Never mind. It'll get there. In Brazil. The Guarani people attacked a Portuguese settlement and started the Guarani War, which went very badly for them, unfortunately. There were 1,511 dead Guarani to four dead Europeans, which just goes to show how effective guns are. So that was bad for them. Not not good odds. Not good odds, no. The Albany Congress proposed an American Union, which is going somewhat better kind of for the Americans right now. Right. It's the start of the American Union. The first bill to make marriage a legal binding document came into force in England and Wales, meaning that people had to run off to Scotland to get married without permission Ah, and founding many a Regency romance (laughs) plot generations later, Inga. (laughs) She's nodding. We know this well. In China, the Quanlong Emperor changed the law so that people who left for more than three years were not allowed to come back. The Chinese diaspora is a bit more explained by that, like you went away for three years, which if you went that far away... How are you going to get back within three years? So, yes, yeah. uh, classes began at the new Columbia University, which ah, is new back okay. then, not so much now. Yep. Osman III became the Ottoman Emperor. Right. George Washington was 22 at this time. Oh. He was very busy. He had to surrender Fort Necessity to the French, and that had to hurt <laughs> um, in July. And in September, his militia mutinied, and he had to put that oh. down. So, right. Oh, so he was very busy. Yeah. <laughs> And as I said, in Australia, the First Nations of the Aboriginal people were enjoying life because the English hadn't discovered yet. (laughs) Always was, always will be. Okay, and that's the end of my history of Baskerville. And thank you, listener, for staying with us this long. (laughs) Well done, all of us. (laughs) Well, Nietzsche, let's, let's turn to anatomy, which is where we check out our typeface for this episode in more detail. So just to remind our listeners, we refer to anatomy because... Various strokes of different letters are named after body parts. For example, the downward diagonal stroke on a K is called the leg, 
Mm -hmm. And the central curve of an S is called the spine. It's the closest designers get to sounding like doctors. So we like to make the most we of it. We really, really do. Yeah. We do. Okay. Anitra, give us some details about Baskerville's body. And by Baskerville's body, I mean the typeface, <laughs> not, not the one that went on a journey through history. <laughs> Definitely not ending up as a workbench. Okay. No. <laughs> Baskerville. I'm still gobsmacked by that. <laughs> I just love that he's like, mm, it's getting a bit morbid. Maybe I'll. I'm going to have to check the drawers of my antique desk now. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a bad idea, Jason. Yeah, All right, um, back to Baskerville. I'm a, bit, a bit scared about what I might find. Anyway, Baskerville. Baskerville, serif typeface. Um, right. Has a more upright O, so the stress is not on a slant with the O. It's, okay. it's, yep. it's vertical. The tail of the Q is quite fancy, and yep. some speculate that comes from his background as a calligrapher, which makes that, sense to that, me. That sounds, yeah, yeah, that sounds about sense right. Um, it comes in all the things, bold, yep. semi-bold, italic, small caps, and right. because it was revived in the 1920s and tailored for linotype, as we've talked about in previous episodes, linotype yes. and monotype machines, there are multiple cuts. So it's good, a good range of fonts. Yep. Um, the original names of the, and I did have a set, which I got from somewhere that uh, I'm sure I bought it for actual real right. money. The original <laughs> names are based on the size. So the, the, I always found those names ah, confusing. Yeah. Yes. So great primer, double pica, yep. Roman capitals, Bevriere, number one, Roman, two line, double pica, italic caps, which as Garfield in my Just My Type points out, <laughs> sounds like a complicated coffee order. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> Throw the vanilla soy in that and it would not sound Can I get a two-line double biker italic cap (laughs) (laughs) with room for cream? Anyway, yes, so it's been in pretty much continuous use for 250 years or so and it was one of the five typefaces available for the first Apple iBook app, so it made that Uh leap to digital. Yes. Um, And this is where we get to the Vox classification system. So Baskerville's been classified as transitional, and I think we've, we've talked about the Vox classification system a bit, but let's yep. talk about what it actually is, thinking about it from as a system and who invented it. It was invented in 1954 by Maximilian Vox. He was an art theorist and historian of yep. French typography. As we've said, it divides typefaces into types, but his were classicals, moderns and calligraphics, and the serifs are based on their original historical period from humanist, early Venetian to Diodone and Gerald. And we talked yep. a little bit in the in the um, Bedoni episode about that. Sans serifs are called Leonales and the subclassification is grotesque, more contrasty, geometric, which is 1920s and moderns, neo-grotesque, which are minimal stroke. Helvetica is a good example, mainly from the 1950s. And the classicals are divided into humanist, gerald and transitional. So technically you and I follow the Vox atypal, which is the Association Typographic International. Yes, there is such a thing. And they do have yes. meetings. <laughs> Their classification from 1961. So I'm taking this from something that I found called Type Classification Tuesdays, which I just love. Okay. Someone did that. <laughs> um, saying that the Vox atypal classification is based on the 1954 iteration. So th- I'm just sort of saying this to, to show you how deep people go into these, yes, like, the, these classification deep. systems. is based on the 1954 it's... iteration of the Vox system. On its release, the system was widely regarded as a standard in typeface classification classification but by 1967 it was adopted and modified by british standards classification of types so even today the atypical system is regarded as the standard by most typographic scholars who are anal enough like us to care yeah. about the standard standardization of a typeface classification system right. 
And, like, I'm but even lost reading in, that. Rest assured, listeners, you're not going to be tested on this. No. <laughs> Just suffice and to moving, say that, you know. <clears throat> moving forward, it will help you understand some of the stuff that we are talking about. Well, I mean, and also to say that anatomy. there are bodies of people who meet together yeah, that decide on the right. standards for things that you don't. You have no on, idea that they're doing this work. <laughs> apparently on Tuesdays. My husband's one of those for internet protocols. Yeah. And they sort of... <laughs> in a weird way to find lots of things that you see around. Anyway, yep. iTapewell still has a committee working on type classification systems, which I didn't know that, and they seem not to have finished the work. <laughs> They've still got a temporary website up, even though they're supposed to finish, I think, in 2016, and that's very early 2000s of them. Yeah. But they do have a code of conduct up, wow. and it's very extensive, okay. so that gives you a clue on of how there can be strong feelings about this Absolutely. stuff yes. yeah they yeah, haven't done yeah. the work but they've decided how they're going to do the work and no fighting that sort of right. thing it's often said that baskerville is the reason that transitional was added to the vox classification system right so okay. transitional is meant to denote an interstitial movement like between old to modern so old things that look modern basically right. and my yep. friend yarp hardkamp put yes. it this way and i think it's quite a good way to put it he says that each age is transitional because each age is passing away. So the historian may be justified in suggesting that some ages seem more notable as prefaces than as epilogues. So the word transition, however, is always used retrospectively. It's in many cases a negative value judgment. So qualifying Baskerville's typography as transitional is a way of neutralising the significance of his work. Ooh, Okay. Well, I think there's an argument that those early type designers and printers were still largely evoking the look and the sense of the handwritten word. I mean, even in the layout of the page, the, the density of the lines and the appearance of the letter forms, there's often something scribe-like. Which makes sense when you think about yeah. who basketball well, was too, like right? They had yeah. this technology which made reproducing text cheaper and easier, but they didn't want to stray too far from those origins. And when you think about the basic mechanics of pen calligraphy, the, the angle you hold the nib against the page, the mm. way you manage the flow of ink, you get those thicker serifs and the 45-degree angle stress. That's the narrowest part of the graduated stroke yep. in a rounded parts of characters such as a, a B or a P or an O. And when you rotate that stress to 90 degrees, which is characteristic of Baskerville and modern typefaces, you referred earlier to the fact that it's got a vertical stress rather than an angled one. I don't even know if you can achieve that with a pen. Don't get me started on the way they teach children to handwrite now. Yeah, well... Because they so do maybe, teach them maybe, to do it vertically maybe like if that. You, maybe if you manipulate and twist your arm and that sort of stuff, you could do it. But I don't... I've done my fair share of calligraphy in my time and it's not something that I think I would be able to achieve. So, Well, can you go and rotating... tell the people who teach primary school handwriting because I tried <laughs> to have that conversation with them. It does. It makes it so much harder. Yeah. Um, it's the natural kind of slant... It's a, it's yeah, a human, absolutely. it fits with the human hand instead of yeah. trying to make it look like it belongs on a computer. There's a thesis yeah. in that. Anyway, but, do go on, Jason. But I was just going to say that, that rotating the stress from 45 to, to 90 degrees is a small and subtle shift, but it is one that I think suggests that someone made a decision mm. along the line to stop replicating the past and start designing for the actual technology that they had. Yeah. And I think it makes a surprisingly big difference to the way that we actually read letter forms. Yeah, and that's kind of, I mean, car design's a different thing, but it's that idea of, like, they used to look like 
carriages and then they were like yeah. hey they don't have to look like carriages anymore carriages anymore right Absolutely. and then you think with electric cars do they need to look you know and function the way that the gas cars different. do yeah. yeah so yes to all of this jason sure. everything okay. you said well let's now let's move on now to our feelings yep so what's your overall impression and the best worst features of baskerville anitra i just have to say in the script here you've done far more <laughs> contributions on this than me that's all right so i'm just you, gonna you've you've done above it you went <laughs> above and beyond with the history so either that or i bought everyone solid a, a break while yeah. i waffle on about my feelings <laughs> look just thank you for still being here listener um that's all i can say baskerville was called narrow and hurtful to the eye when it Ooh. came out and i don't agree with that and again don't listen to the haters john <laughs> I think Baskerville is a really well-considered and well-proportioned typeface. Mm. I like that it has a relatively tall X height, so the lowercase characters hold their own against the capitals without competing against them. Yeah. And there's a really well-judged contrast between the thick and the thin strokes. I'd go so far as to say we're talking Goldilocks territory. I mean, well, he did aim to go and, and make it he more perfect. He aimed for perfection and it's pretty and I much think, achieved. Yeah, I think Nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. And the other aspect I really like about this typeface is there's a clear visual relationship between the Roman and the Italic typeface. Yeah, which surprisingly doesn't always happen. It's not the bare minimum facing a <laughs> stiff wind sloping version of tum- some typefaces, mm. but it isn't extreme as some others. And as an extreme example, I'll cite Novarese, which we may fe- feature in a future episode, but until then, just trust me or look it up yourself. Oh. But, a typeface that I've ever ever used. Yes, let's do talk about but that. But if you compare, if you do a side and side by side comparison between the Roman and Italic <laughs> faces of Novarese, it really raises some awkward family issues about adoptions or pos- possible infidelities. I mean, there is very little in common between those things. But well, I mean, spoiler alert for the last episode of the season, I was researching a bit more about how these things were developed, and I think I have. An explanation for that. Right. Okay, Okay. do go on. But getting back to Baskerville, he designed true italics for this typeface. Yeah, he did. And so while they match their Roman counterparts in key ways, there are enough little flourishes on like the capital J or the N or the Z to show some flair and also hark back to their calligraphic roots. And I really like the Q. (laughs) And please no one snip that out of the episode and make me into some QAnon thing but they could probably benefit in fact they probably do you use like that cue if you were going to do a t-shirt that just said cue <laughs> right you'd pick yeah. it it's 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 there are some really beautiful parts um, yeah of that set of letter forms. yes but, listener take take the time to look at the at the yeah. capital Q but I, I also think part of the problem with a typeface like baskerville is that it's been around for so mm, long that yeah. sometimes it is a challenge to look at it with fresh eyes i mean it's a serif and yeah we tend to think of serifs as being predictable and conservative, reliable, and because of that, a bit dull. We tend to look past them, which must not be at why them. it's trustworthy. It doesn't, yeah, you know. But so, okay, think of Olivia Coleman. Like, <laughs> okay. She's British. Yes. Bear with me. She's British. She's very British. I mean. I think once you play the Queen of England for two seasons of The Crown, if they cut you open, you probably have the word Britannia running through you like a stick of Brighton Rock. (laughs) And she often plays these modest second fiddle characters as well. But once the camera's on her, 
all these complexities, these fascinating and surprising qualities shine through. She's actually a bit of a scene stealer. Wow. Yeah, I thought you were drawing a long bow, but I see how you got I see how you got back to that being got, the celebrity analogue for, yeah, for Baskerville. So okay. Well I think what we would well, say well, is surprisingly pretty when yes, you look at it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we won't get too caught up in Olivia Coleman and her relationship with basketball. <laughs> so we'll move on to another important section, which is why you should or shouldn't get into a relationship with this typeface. Yeah. Each face was made for or is good for a purpose or purposes. So what's Baskerville good for and what not good for? Well, I mean, as we've said, it's the most trusted typeface. Right. Based on research. I mean, that's a good reason to have a relationship with it. Like if you want, and I think if you want people to believe what you say, set it in Baskerville. And that, now I think about it this way, that might explain why I've used it for multiple academic textbook body copy settings. It does have authority and and clarity at the same time. Um, I've only used it when I've had enough room to set it larger, though. It does need a little bit more X height, height, in my opinion. So you've got to make sure you've got it roomy enough. Way to do it. And look, I'm sure I'm not the only designer to have a small selection of typefaces I prefer to use over and over. Yeah. It's like having a few key outfits in your wardrobe, you know, the equivalent of the little black dress, the classic leather jacket, the lucky interview suit. (laughs) They're those special clothes you feel both comfortable and confident in and you know they make you look good and they can suit a range of occasions from the casual to the formal. Yeah, true. Yeah. For me, Baskerville's definitely one of those go-to typefaces, but I'll also confess it has been somewhat down the list. Mm. It's been a little while since I've dusted it off, and actually this episode has made me realise that I should probably give it an airing more often. Yes, and as I'm not a designer anymore and don't get to do these things and make these choices anymore, I encourage others also maybe yeah. dust it off a yeah. bit. I mean, 100% the same. I think I still default to Garamond more for body copy, but Baskerville, I think, is a really solid choice if you just want to set something. And I often advise Inga's thesis students to, to consider that as a as an alternative to, times to, to, to Times New Roman. Yeah, it's a dead white man font, <laughs> although this is as well. But well, dead, yes, dead white true. atheist rebel white yeah, but, man. But a very a very mobile dead man. <laughs> I mean, I, did, I don't as know. As we learned in the history session. <laughs> usually we talk about logos set in Baskerville and I don't know if I – looked for any logos set in Baskerville. I tend to uh, well, think of it as a body copy yeah, typeface. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think it's probably more used in an academic kind of Yeah, and sense, when you need to set... At a publishing sense. Yeah, and when you need than, to set big headlines a, or something like, you yeah, know, it, then it that still sort of do commercial well. Yeah. But, okay, yeah. now for our final section. Kiss, date, kill or marry. Mm-hmm. This is when we talk about whether we would want to be with this typeface or, or not. So... Is Baskerville a one-time thing or do you just go out with it occasionally? Do you never use it or do you use it so much you worry about yourself? So let's get real, Anitra. Okay. um, Married but divorced a long time ago and still friends. (laughs) Okay. I mean, Garfield calls Baskerville unusually slender, delicate and well-balanced and tasteful, which kind of sums it up for me. I mean, how can you resist that? I like it very much. I didn't use it a lot out of academic publishing, as we've just talked about. It's a little bit, even when I moved to different kind of publishing at Penguin, it was just a little bit too cold for fiction too. Like it's just a little bit too, 
crisp, I guess. So, but definitely very, very fond, very fond of Baskerville. (laughs) Got a lot of time. So yeah, okay, divorce but still friends. Well, for me, I'd say date. I I wish I could say marry, Mm -hmm. but as much as I've enjoyed reacquainting myself more fully with Baskerville in this episode, I. I feel like my relationship with it is more like one of those long-term partnerships that just doesn't quite get over the line. Ooh. You know, like it's devoted enough that we've met each of each other's family and friends and we've talked about whether or not we want kids and a picket fence and everyone is expecting the announcement any day now. But I can just picture Baskerville turning to me at some point and saying, look, if you aren't prepared to commit, <laughs> I can't wait on you forever. So, Wow. Uh, Okay. Probably says more about me than Baskerville, but that's that's what I'm going with. And we think about John and Sarah's relationship, and eventually they did get to the yeah, marriage. Yeah, they did. Oh, I'm so just glad for it yeah, that that well, happened there. That, that I don't have that level of commitment, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Well, not for right. Baskerville anyway. Not for Baskerville. <laughs> so. All right. So that's our feelings, Jason. Yes. We've covered a lot. We have. Episode. It's been a long episode. Thank you for listening this far. Thanks for listening. These are our feelings and opinions about typefaces. We're interested in yours. You can email us on the address in the show notes, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate us and make the pod easier to find. And as we said, if you've got a question or opinion or want to teach us how to pronounce something properly, go to our SpeakPipe page, which you'll find (laughs) on our transcript notes. Yes, Um, we'd love to hear from you. We have actually heard from a few people, but I didn't include it in this script. So I will give some shout outs in the next episode. But thank you for the people who say lovely things. And thank you also to our friends who are actual genuine fans and keep telling us to, you know, when are you going to put out the next episode? Look, we did. So, you know, but thanks thanks for the encouragement. Jason, where can Absolutely. we where can people contact you? You can email me at designsleuth at yahoo.com. And I'm at Anitra Not, so on all the things and anitraland.com. And our producer Inga is at Thesis Whisperer on Twitter. So thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks for getting through all of that. <laughs> thanks for your company. <laughs> <laughs>